Welcome to CyberCast, decoding today's cyber issues. I'm Alexander Bolova, production lead at GovCIO Media and Research. With me today is staff writer researcher Nikki Henderson. Hi, Nikki. Hi there, Alex. So you had the opportunity to chat with Stephen Hernandez, CISO at Department of Education. How'd it go? I actually had a great conversation with Stephen. Uh, we discussed the Department of Education's three-part plan to transition into zero-trust security architecture. So Stephen uh, talked about what DOE is doing to shield its security posture from things like ransomware, and he also gave an update on how the agency is coming along with implementing Secure Access Service Edge and Identity Credential and Access Management. Last year, DOE completed the first of that three-part plan that you were just talking about to migrate to zero-trust security architecture, and they're currently on the second phase now. What did Stephen say about the progress DOE has made up to this point, and what are some of the obstacles they've had to overcome? Well, Stephen said DOE is making a lot of progress in its migration to zero-trust security architectures. They just wrapped up the first phase, which was that initial step of replacing the legacy security technology. So they've done that. And now the second phase is focused more on the security orchestration, automation, and response piece of the zero-trust model. So Stephen called this the intermediary maturity level. He said this phase is like the brain of zero trust and it's when you start to see the attackers come to surface. And so DOE is very busy um, trying to customize and tailor their tools and technologies to keep up with the sophistication of the threats because they're even more sophisticated now than they were just a week ago. So that's something that they're very busy doing. And one of the, and another way that they are doing this is by automating their manual processes and security operations. What did Stephen say about some of the tools or emerging technologies that DOE is using to deliver security as well as to enhance the user experience? Well, Alex, there was a great deal of discussion about improving the user experience because this is a, a top priority for DOE. So Stephen said they've seen a lot of success using the Secure Access Service Edge. It's really been a big win for DOE because it allows the agency to shift the network into cloud quickly, which resulted in a 20% increase in both bandwidth and latency performance which Stephen says has significantly enhanced the user experience, which is a huge plus uh, for the customer and for DOE. And before we jump into your interview, I wanted to ask, when it comes to zero trust capabilities and DOE's workforce, what did Stephen say about the agency's implementation of identity access and credential management? The implementation process is actually going very well. Stephen talked about how ICAM is vitally important to their workforce. He said identity is the heart of what Zero Trust is. He said the agency is following the cybersecurity executive order, so that is requiring agencies to have strong identities. And Stephen said a way to 
have strong identities, to build those is through identity proofing. And uh, he talked about how NIST actually defines ID proofing as the process of providing sufficient information, such as identity history, credentials, documents, to establish an identity like a personal identity verification card, a PIV card. So Stephen said in order, like if you're a DOE employee, you have to have a very high level of identity proofing, which includes having two forms of ID, putting down biometric fingerprints, and having your picture taken. So the end goal here is to use that identity as the prime identity for access to the agency systems. Thank you, Nikki. With all of that in mind, let's take a listen to your conversation. Well, Stephen, I really appreciate you taking time to speak with me today about the Department of Education's current cybersecurity efforts, future cyber initiatives, as well as the agency's three-part plan to migrate to zero trust. So before we get started, Stephen, do you mind introducing yourself and just giving a brief description of your role at the Department of Education? Absolutely. And thank you so much for having me here today, Nikki. So I'm Stephen Hernandez. My day job, I'm the Chief Information Security Officer at the U.S. Department of Education. I'm also the co-chair of the Federal CISO Council with Krista Russia, um, holding up the better half of that relationship. And then I'm also the uh, government chair of the ACT-IAC Cybersecurity Community of Interest. So at the department in particular, my role encompasses making sure that all the information technology, the cloud services we use, the information that's entrusted to us as a department that it's protected and that we're maintaining that public trust. And most folks know us for our, our one of our primary missions, which is ensuring educational excellence of, of the nation. And we do that through several programs. We protect student civil rights. We, we put out educational policy. We study the effectiveness of the American education system and provide feedback to Congress and other stakeholders. And that's an incredibly important mission because no matter where you find yourself in your life, if you decide, hey, I want to go and further my education, we're going to remove the barriers and obstacles to ensure that you can pursue that education. Part of that, though, the other side of the department really is that uh, if we were looked at as a bank, we'd be one of the largest in the world. Um, when we look at the United States balance sheet and the accounts receivable page, uh, the number one line item is the U.S. Department of Education, around $1.8 trillion. That's our student loan portfolio. Any other given year, like during the CARES Act or the American Recovery Act, we may broker another few trillion dollars through this department in support of the American people. And so um, while we have this incredible policy and almost a philosophical mission around education, we also operate very much like a bank through our grants and our financial aid programs, which means from an attacker perspective, we see it all. We see all the same attackers that we're going to see as a cabinet level agency and folks who are interested in getting into federal networks. And then we also see everything the largest banks in the world see. So it's a really unique perspective to watch. And it's very interesting how that mission space has availed itself to moving and modernizing in cybersecurity. That's very interesting. Well, thank you so much, Stephen. I really appreciate that. What line of defenses does the department have in place when it comes to shielding its security posture from ransomware and cyber threats? Yeah, so ransomware, it's interesting topic because 
you know, anywhere you talk in industry, particularly private industry, ransomware is the number one concern. And we've seen pipeline companies, meatpacking companies, Fortune 25, Fortune 50, large casinos all get impacted uh, by ransomware. And it's an interesting business model from the attacker's perspective because their goal is to go out and say, how can I inflict the maximum amount of discomfort and get the maximum amount of return? The federal government's a little different in that equation because, uh, number one, we don't pay ransoms. And so you can try to ransomware us, but you're, you're the only folks who are going to visit you is likely the FBI, and that's that's always a very unpleasant visit. Um, and then two, in, in many ways over the years, because of the Federal Information Security Modernization Act and a lot of the requirements that are coming out with Zero Trust, we've architected our systems in such a way where we're, we're just not as susceptible to ransomware. Like most users in a federal department and agency won't have local administrative access to their desktop. If they need software installed or they need a configuration changed, that's a service desk ticket. And then an authorized user with strong multi-factor will come in and make those changes. And it's not a it's not a perfect situation. Some ransomware still slips through. Some uses zero days. But by far and large, because we operate in least privilege and least functionality, which are core tenants of zero trust, it makes us much harder targets. And then there's just, frankly, the, the economics, the supply and demand is a were. And it was fascinating to watch from a sector perspective over the last two, three years in the ransomware space where attackers started looking at, you know, what are these big but soft targets, the Fortune 25s, the Fortune 50s, that we can attack and really extract some some good ransom? And they went wild. Meatpacking companies, pipeline companies, they went, they went all over. But then those companies largely found religion. They found zero trust. They found stronger security. They said, you know, it's gonna be, it's gonna be less painful to invest in good security than it is to deal with the ransomware. I'm, I'm not sure where the casinos missed that memo, but they're, they're catching up now too. And what that did though is the attackers said, there's a lot of work. There's a lot of work to, to attack these organizations. Let's, let's find the next best target. And unfortunately for my sector, the education sector, that's where they went. Most of them went to the education sector because they're like state, local schools, tribal affiliates, those type of areas. Typically, a lot of PII, student information, but not always the best protected. And many of them will pay. Maybe not as much as corporate America will pay, but many of them will pay enough to make the juice worth the squeeze. Now, um, particularly through our, our White House efforts and our outreach and Nuremberger, our Deputy Secretary, Cindy Martin, they've been it just emphatic about pushing in that sector. So we're strengthening that. So we'll eventually see the attackers shift somewhere else. But when we think about the lines of defense that are being successful in the federal government, it's one, we remove the incentive to attack us. We don't pay ransoms. Two, we've deployed very strong configuration management around least function and least privilege. And then three, it's also that incident reporting. Our users are trained. Hey, even if you clicked on the link, even if you opened the attachment, report it anyway, because the sooner we can get a sample of whatever that malicious malware or link might be, the faster we can tear it apart in the lab, inoculate the entire network, and, and we call it a day. And like our users do that at a – during testing, they do that at a rate between like 70 and 90%. They, they'll report in, hey, I saw something. So you bring all this together, and you can find quite a bit of resilience against ransomware. Okay, great. Thank you, Stephen. Well, earlier this year, 
DOE completed its first phase of its three-part plan to migrate to zero trust security architectures. Now that the agency is in the second phase, what progress has been made toward that migration and what challenges have you faced during the process? Yeah, so what's been interesting about our journey in Zero Trust is the the number one challenge isn't really a technology challenge. The technology is very straightforward, and it's the saying is is still true. You can't buy ZTA and out of a box, and you can't buy it and deploy it. That's that's very true. You buy technology components and services that enable the functions of Zero Trust. And so our first big move into to Zero Trust was really around replacing a legacy. Security security technology, our virtual private network, the VPN. Great technology, been around for decades, very, very serviceable, did its job, but it has an inherent flaw when it comes to zero trust, and that is you implicitly trust the network once it's connected, and that that violates the heck out of one of the core tenants of zero trust. And so it's like, mm-hmm. all right, we, we, we're going to start here. And um, what we did is we replaced that with secure access service edge technologies. And it's interesting because on the surface, it sounds the same, but wait, you're, you're still just encrypting all the traffic all the time and making sure it's being inspected and whatnot. That sounds a lot like what the VPN did, but the difference is with zero trust, it's all the behavioral analytics and the, the monitoring that goes on with it. And that's the power of the cloud. So we successfully um, went through that. That was the initial gates. And what was fascinating about that was we had an initial pilot where we had a few hundred folks enrolled and all of a sudden we noticed that we had we had people coming out of the woodwork that weren't part of the initial pilot saying i i, I want to be part of that pilot let me be part of that pilot like mm-hmm. well this is odd why and it's because they'd figured out that under the new zero trust model with secure access service edge they had to authenticate once with their PIV, a strong authenticator, they had to authenticate once, but then we left them connected the whole rest of the time. And we were monitoring the behavior to determine, do we need to re-authenticate? And as long as they weren't switching networks, switching geolocations, going to systems they normally don't go to, locked and loaded, go throughout your work throughout the day. Under the old model with Zero Tra, with the, the VPN, um, folks would time out. They'd walk away and the VPN would time out and it would disconnect and maybe your work wouldn't sync. And, you know, there's all these problems with, am I on the network? Am I off the network? We eliminated those. And users wanted that experience. They wanted that digital experience. And I think this is one of the key success factors of a successful zero trust deployment is making sure that as you're doing this, you're taking the opportunities to improve that user experience, improve the digital experience. Because if you can do that, they they will beat a path to your door and say me next. They, and you know they frankly don't care about what I care about the security and the telemetry and the visibility and the the ability to to monitor and change traffic in real time. They could care less. All they know is I log in once and then my workday is uninterrupted. It's wonderful. So right now what we're looking at is. Um, we're really moving into what's called the security orchestration automation and response piece of the, the zero trust model. And this is kind of an intermediary maturity level when we talk about what's called the trust engine or the policy enforcement engine. And that is the brain 
of zero trust. And what we're seeing is attackers, particularly now with artificial intelligence, they're moving at the speed of the machine. They're they're writing malware um, in custom ways for custom targets almost instantaneously. Phishing is becoming customized and tailored. And so our tools and technologies have to be able to keep up. The first way we do that is by taking what our manual processes right now in security operations and then automating them. And, you know, in many cases, we've been able to take um, something like 50,000 alerts in a day that an, a normal analyst would have to work through and through security orchestration automation response, distill that down to like 80 or 50 and say, you know, these are the ones <laughs> that really need your attention. The rest of them, we can automate the process. It's like, oh, somebody reported a phishing link email. Great. Take the URL, drop it into the, the inspection engine, get the results. The results are null or not the issue. Email the user, let them know if there's an issue escalate. And that is the beginning of how we move towards full automation and full AI. But that's that's the, the core of what we're working at right now, is getting those pieces in place and then concurrently moving towards software-defined networking. So we still have some traditional WAN and LAN in the, the organization. But here again, because we don't trust the network, we don't really need that type of architecture anymore. We just need to make sure that the zero trust technologies are layered on top of that. And so we'll be shifting away from those technologies and moving towards uh, software-defined networking, software-defined wide area networks, software-defined perimeter, software-defined everything at the network layer. And that allows us to also do things like micro-segmentation, be able to say, whoa, Stephen's got some weird traffic going on. You know what? We're going to restrict his access to only these IP addresses that happen to be a patching server, a vulnerability scanning server, and the incident response toolkits. And then, you know, everything else else we're going to sit but with software-defined networking we can do that instantaneously and we can automate it through SOAR. So the next phase of our journey is really around that automation piece but it's a lot of networking technology and a lot of understanding the business processes because if we don't have a good business process orchestrating and automating a poor process is just going to exacerbate that problem. <laughs> Right, right. Well, it sounds like you guys, you all are making great progress on your journey at Desire Trust. So that's that's really great to hear. Well, Stephen, can you update me on DOE uh, enabling the use of bring your own device? Mm -hmm. So at Ed, um, we we do have a BYOD program. And it's interesting because uh, Zero Trust actually facilitates uh, BYOD in, in, in many ways. And for us, the way we look at it is we have to have devices that are uh, known, excuse me, known good devices and secure devices. So we actually have like an approved device list. These are the devices that will work and will um, will allow as part of the BYOD program. And then from there, um, we containerize on top of the device. Um, some of the devices um, are exceptional in their architecture. They actually have a separate hardware component on the device that we can leverage. And we can say, Department of Ed, your data is only going to go on that particular area of the device, and it will never leave that that area of the device and others other devices have a similar approach but they do it through software and then it's really around the rigor of that software that we're looking at as to whether or not we trust the containerization that's going to happen there what's been really interesting about the byod program with us is 
the fact that it's it's not so much the tech it's never the technology it's not the technology that that's a concern in many cases it's the rules of a behavior that we require folks to to agree to and because department data is going on to their personal device in most cases we have to be able to say okay got to understand, though, if, if there's an IG investigation because there's a potential compromise or something's going on and your device is implicated, we may need you to turn over your whole device to, to the inspector general for, for analysis and forensics. We may need you to turn it over to the security operations center so we can do a forensic analysis against it. And in the course of those actions, we may inspect the whole device. So not just what's in the government side of things, but if a container fails or we suspect there's leakage, we may have to look at the whole device. And so there's a real trade space there where folks have to be willing to accept and understand that while we hope it never happens and, and we hope that if it does happen, we can limit the scope of what we're looking at, we may have to look at your entire device and everything that's on it. And for some folks, that's just a, that's just a, a bit too far. They're like, you know what? I'll take the government device. I'll I'll be the govy with with two phones. That's that's cool. Uh, other folks are just fine with it. They're like, you know, I'm a pretty boring person. There's there's really nothing you're going to see on the other side of the phone anyway. So have at it. But I think that's been the real differentiator for folks in terms of whether they participate in the BYOD program or not. Is how comfortable are they with potentially sharing a lot of their life with the government? Well, that makes sense. And like you said, some people, they don't have a problem with it, nothing to hide. Others may not want to be so, I guess, transparent. So um, that that's understandable. Well, what tools or emerging technologies is the agency utilizing to deliver security and to enhance the user experience? Yeah, so we, we talked about the big one, which is that secure access service edge. That's been a, a huge win for us. Um, the other thing that that did was Normally, in a, in a classic type of department or agency configuration, we have what are called TICs, Trusted Internet Connections. And these are like physical fiber connections that connect the department out to the, to the world, to the Internet. And there's a bunch of security and monitoring tools that are there. The challenge is that they've always been the bottleneck. And they've always been painful for departments and agencies because it's often, geez, you know, you have to you have to buy a certain capacity and throughput. And like during COVID, when agencies had to shift from a largely internal workforce to an external workforce, a lot of their circuits were not ready. And in many cases, like increasing the size of this circuit could be a 90 day, 120 day type of order. So it's very difficult to work in that space. One of the things that Secure Access Service Edge does is it mandates that we start shifting that network into the cloud. And all of a sudden, it's like, I can turn up bandwidth about as fast as I can say by now. And that's what's been really incredible is that our users have also noticed that going from, say, the legacy VPN to SASE, most of them saw between a 5 and a 20% increase in both bandwidth and latency performance. And so that was a, a nice win on top of uh, a better user experience. When we look at the other technologies that are really coming to the forefront right now, it's interesting. One of my former bosses, a CIO, sat down with a Fortune 5 uh, CIO, and they were having dinner, and they said, well, well, how many enterprise resource management systems do you have? Well, I have one. How many HR systems do you have? I have one. How many um, budget systems do you have? I have one. How many security systems and platforms do you have? Probably about 150. 
And this has been, yeah, this has been a, a real issue over time because security evolves and it's like, oh, I've got the niche product that will solve problem X. And then unfortunately, we never do quite a good job of like consolidating and optimizing and rationalizing that portfolio. And so at the department, I think a lot of CISOs right now are going through and doing that work and saying, you know, I've got 150 discrete cybersecurity tools and services right now. How many do I really need and how much of this is duplicative? And one of the things we've discovered is we've been able to eliminate about 20 to 30 percent of our overlap over the last two years because as we're bringing in these new modern tools as part of Zero Trust, we're finding they cover a lot of the capabilities that we either have one-off solutions or solutions that may not work as well as we think. The other um, thing we're noticing is as we move into more cloud services, the cloud service providers themselves are offering a lot of this capability. Um, we just had a, a bespoke data monitoring tool that we use to watch for data leakage and data protection and things like that. And it was nearly a million dollars a year for us to run that tool. And what we discovered was one of our major cloud service providers now offered 90, 95% of those same capabilities that we, we were, were using here, and it was already included in our licensing. And so it was just a matter of saying, well, can I live without that 5% or is that 5% something we can augment somehow? And yes, it was. And so we saved a million dollars by drawing down and, and eliminating that particular tool from our portfolio. So I think as we go forward, you know, some of the areas we're going to continue to see that type of thinking, certainly around endpoint detection and response. So the ability to understand the health of our devices, our laptops, our, our mobile devices, and then being able to effectuate how that configuration is in, in operation and how we're deploying security capabilities. I think the other area that's uh, really big right now is around logging. And this is a huge technology conversation. And it's a, it's a fascinating one because, well, logging's as old as dirt. Ever since there was a computer, we had logs. And now with OMB and Zero Trust and, and Memorandum 2131, we're really looking at how do we do this at scale and how do we do this at, at the right price point? And I think this is one of the most interesting technology inflection points we have right now because – in the past, we almost always thought about logs in security with a SIM, a security event and an information management platform, which is really kind of a database, maybe a data warehouse, but it's tailored towards security logs. The challenge is most of those technologies charge us for ingestion. And they're like, okay, you want to ingest 15 terabytes? It's X million dollars. And, and that's how we, we charge. And when we look at 2131 and the requirements, it's like, oh, my gosh, it's, it's eye-watering under the current licensing models and the current price model. You, you just look at it and say, that would double my security budget just, just for the logs, just for the logs. It would double my security budget. And so what we're seeing, though, and, and this is what I love about this nation's industry, competition. The big data players have stepped up and said, hey, we do this. We do it a lot cheaper, a lot faster, a lot better. Yeah, we may not necessarily play in the security space, but you know, you, you want to save the 75% on these costs because we can do that if you're willing to move to like data lake technology versus SIM technologies. And so I think a lot of CISOs right now are getting up to speed on what that trade space looks like and then how they can leverage the power of like these data scientists and how they view the world versus the security operations uh, vendors and how they view the world. 
Right. That is amazing. When you were talking about the Secure Access Service Edge and how it increases the bandwidth and latency performance for the customer, the user, but you were able to save a million dollars by eliminating a certain tool. So that is really amazing. Well, what role does resiliency and misguidance play in DOE's incident response plan to an infrastructure attack? Yeah. Um, and, you know, this is the one that we're still very sensitive to because, you know, we're, we're, we're a public facing organization and particularly, you know, here in December, we have FAFSA season coming up. So um, we're going to be in a situation where students expect to be able to go and apply for federal student aid. It's one of our prime times, 80 million students a year come to us and say, hey, I want to apply for, for student aid and Impel grants and other forms of assistance. And if our systems are down, that could have a very impactful moment for a student. Um, if they can't get their FAFSA in, maybe they don't get aid that year. Maybe they don't go to school that semester. Maybe they don't go to school that year. Maybe this was their one chance. And geez, you know what? I, I just got to join the workforce now because this was this was the time that I could make it work. And if I didn't get started now, well, I, I don't know if I'll get started again. All very real situations. And so when we think about resilience and, and NIST, what's great is NIST has always talked about the importance of resilience, although NIST didn't always call it resilience. So in cybersecurity, we always talk about the CIA triad, confidentiality, integrity, and availability. Availability has always been about resilience. Our systems need to be up. They need to be available for the authorized users. And so NIST has done a lot of great work in this space because in the past, when we talked about resilience, we always talked about in terms of, oh, multiple data centers and different geographical locations around the country and, and this, that, and the other. But with cloud, that's a very different situation now because I can have multi-tenant across the same cloud provider and geographical places across the world. I can have multiple cloud providers potentially uh, participating in, in a particular area. And I think what's been interesting about how NIST has approached it and how like we as a department have approached it is um, there used to be uh, also a big discussion around diversity of providers. And it's like, ah, you should have diversity of providers because if Provider X is affected by a vulnerability and you have to take them down, then, you know, if you have provider Y, they, they won't be. That type of thinking is, is diminishing. And it's diminishing because of the confidence that we've built in our, our cloud service providers through programs like FedRAMP. So FedRAMP takes the NIST standards for, for FISMA, turns them into cloud consumable type of security requirements. And what we're finding is a lot of these cloud service providers have not only said, yeah, we're, we're going to do moderate availability, but many of them have said, we'll even go up to high availability. You know, if you want five nines, we can get you five nines. You want, you want 10 nines. We, bring your wallet, but we can get you there, right? And the elasticity and the power of the cloud, one of the things NIST really harps on is understanding your business because like for us, we have we have prime times. It's like, okay, FISMA enrollment, that's prime time, right? right? The beauty of the cloud is it's like, we may very well want to pay for 10 nines during that period and only that period. So for two to three months, the elasticity of the cloud spin up those extra nodes, spin up those extra resources, spin up the extra monitoring, add the new geolocations during that prime time. 
And then the rest of the time, sure, let's drop it back down to five nines. Under a traditional data center model, under, under a classic way of thinking about resilience, near impossible. You would have to build for the 10 nines and then pay that all the way throughout the year. And so I think as we look forward around resilience, um, the foundations are still just vitally important. You need to have good backups. You need to have, you need to test the contingency plans. You need to test the disaster recovery plans. One of the things we do at the department is every quarter we hold a workshop where any of our system owners can come in and they can test their incident response plan and they can test their contingency plan and their operations. And we give them feedback. It's like, hey, these three people are listed as as core in your contingency plan and they're gone. <laughs> so you know, right. what are you, you going to do, right? Um, and, you know, having those discussions and having people work through the plans before they need them is the real key to success here because nobody is thinking rationally during a crisis. Emotion is running high. Emotions are, are making a lot of the decisions and folks have to be acclimated and ready so it's just reaction that oh we're going into disaster recovery okay pull out the disaster recovery plan step one stand up the bridge great let's get it done step two make sure all these people are there done step three start following the plan for disaster recovery and when you get there it's murphy's law it's like most of the teams that have gotten there have like rarely ever needed to actually use it. But I guarantee the one team that isn't trained and isn't ready, it's going to be their system. It's always their system yeah. that it's like, it's like, why, why, why is that system down? Why, why has it been down for a day? And, and it's like, oh, we have, because they, they haven't updated or tested their plans for, for a few months. Um, and I think that as we go forward, especially with better technology in the cloud, we're going to see NIST continue to push on how we improve resilience, particularly across like multi-agency type of, of services, shared services uh, that are across the departments as they're becoming more vital. And, um, you know, the other thing NIST has done recently, which has been fantastic, is the control Bible we use, 800-53. Um, it is now online, and we can go in and we can make suggestions for control enhancements in real time. And so rather than this being like a every year, every three year, like big change process, we're going rev five to rev six. We're done with that. Now we're doing like, oh, this is rev five one one. This is rev five one two. This is rev five one three. Because if we see things like technology's changed or technology's gotten better or, oh, there's a new threat we need to worry about, we can go in and make those suggestions to NIST and NIST can update them um, almost in real time now. So that's been a huge advantage and a huge improvement that NIST has made just in the past few years. Awesome, Stephen. Thank you so much. Thank you. Well, when it comes to zero trust capabilities and the DOE workforce, and you've already talked a great deal about Secure Access Service Edge, but what is the status of the agency's implementation of Secure Access Service Edge and also ICAM, Identity Access and Credential Management? So ICAM, ICAM is just so vitally important now. In fact, it's it's. I'm shocked I've had this much conversation about ZTA without mentioning ICAM at this <laughs> point, because at the at the foundations, zero trust is saying I've got an identity, something, someone, and that's what's fun is we're we're talking about some things now too. It could be an AI, it could be a robot, right? Welcome, welcome to the future. We're here, and that that identity wanting to access a resource. 
Maybe it's data, maybe it's a service, maybe it's financial information, who knows, but that is the heart of what Zero Trust is about, is saying, I got these two players, an identity and, and some type of object that they want to get access to. How do I build trust to ensure that that should happen? And that's what we're, we're really talking about. So when we talk about identity, that is such a critical piece because if we don't have strong assurance of the identity, we don't, hey, nobody knows you're a dog on the internet. That, that is the perfect saying around trust and identity. It's like, you know, you know, Bob's putting all these posts, but is Bob a dog? Don't know. All I know is it says that this is Bob. So one of the things we're doing, and we've just so much great work by GSA, uh, by NIST in this space, and the login.gov folks and the U.S. Access folks is, so in the, the cybersecurity executive order, it talks about the need to make sure that we have strong identities and we have phishing resistant authentication. The way that we get strong identity is through a process called identity proofing. And what that means is that, like when I go and get my driver's license, that's a form of identity. Oftentimes, I have to show up in person. I typically have to bring some other forms of corroborating information. Here's my birth certificate. Here's a passport. Here's a bill, whatever the case may be. All these things that build credibility towards, oh, yeah, you you are Stephen Hernandez. Okay, great. And when we do that, the identity we issue, so in this case, a driver's license, we have a very good understanding and a very high level of trust that, yeah, that license says Stephen Hernandez, that's his picture, and he generally looks like his picture. I can biometrically confirm that. Okay, good. We're, we're on our way. So we're doing the same thing as we look at our technology systems now. And we're saying that, you know, if, if you're working in the federal government, if you're an employee or a contractor working directly with us, we want you to have a very high level of identity proofing. And so usually that happens when we get our badge or our PIV. We bring two forms of ID with us. Uh, we put down biometric fingerprints and we have our photo taken and all of that gets matched up to say, yeah, okay, we have a, we have a very strong opinion that, that Stephen is who he claims to be. And here, here is your identifier, your PIV. And then our goal is to then use that identity as the prime identity for any system access. And so um, in ICAM, what that means is that one, we need to have a centralized enterprise-wide identity capability. Um, and the great news is like, like for us, this is another one of the areas where five years ago, we had a standalone ICAM system that was by vendor X and it was okay and it was great. But then through competition, we said, hey, these are all the existing CSPs we already have. This is the licensing we have for the CSPs we have. If you can leverage one of them, you'll get more points on source selection. Sure enough, the winner came back and said, you have Cloud Service X. They have a full identity and access management system available. We're going to use that. And so we did. And that, one, saved us a bunch of money again. But two, it basically said anything that was already in that cloud, great. We're going to bring the identity in and associate it and adopt it. And like all those workloads were effectively compliant day one that we moved into that situation. So that was a huge win for us. And now it's really about making sure that 
On the government side, I feel like across the board, we have a really good grasp on the identity piece and we're all moving in the same direction. But the cybersecurity executive order calls us to do more. It calls us to say where you have citizen facing services, you need to make available the same level of identity and the same level of authentication that you enjoy as a, as a federal employee. And so that means that for us, all of our public facing systems, we're looking, okay, can I use login.gov and use their identity proofing and use their authentication mechanisms to give the citizen the choice as to how strong they want their interaction with the government to be. And we're seeing that play out across the federal space as well. That's a lot slower because we're dealing with hundreds of millions of citizens, most of them already in systems. And so we're moving there, but we're seeing IRS moving in this direction, DHS moving in this direction. We're moving in this direction. So, and the best part about it is back to that user and that digital experience. For us, we want the U.S. citizen to say, I need, I need something from the government. Where do I go? We want them to say, I go to login.gov and I log in with my strong identity. I log in with my strong authenticator. And then here's all the different systems that I could request access to in the government. So I need to check my taxes, great, here's IRS. I need to do global entry, great, there it is, let's, let's go. And that is really powerful because like one of the number one complaints and they cross the government is there's all these government departments and services, I have no idea how to get to them. And if we give them a single front door with a single strong way to get in and access it, we're going to win every time. So we have that piece of the identity coming around, the creation and, and how we're thinking about it strategically. And then in the zero trust world, it's really about building an understanding of the behavior around that identity. Saying, you know, Stephen normally logs on at 9 a.m. He checks his email. He checks his calendar. He goes through. He responds to a few things. Then he checks the financial system, whatever. And, you know, if all of a sudden Steven starts going and hitting the contract system first thing in the morning, and then his IP is from New York, but normally he's out of D.C., what's going on? That is exceptionally powerful as well, because now we can start to effectuate the control plane in zero trust based on the identity. Or we also have device identity. If Steven's coming in from a different device, Steven never does BYOD. And all of a sudden he's doing BYOD, but the device is vulnerable. We, we're, we don't have a lot of confidence in this device. We can start to say there's a problem because the identity looks good, but the corroborating attribute, the device has changed. Steven normally doesn't do this. So we should think about if we want to adjust his privileges or potentially review his privileges. Wow. I'm glad that you highlighted and talk specifically about how important identity is and identity proofing as a critical component of Zero Trust. Wow. Well, Stephen, are there any future cyber initiatives that you're excited to talk about? Oh, my gosh, yes. So I think I'll just springboard off the identity discussion because um, I I definitely want to give a highlight to some of the great work that the Postal Service is doing in conjunction with the General Services Administration. So they have a pilot right now um, where they are offering identity proofing solutions um, at the post office. And, you know, what an incredible concept, right? I've always, I've always said, you know, the post office is always about the P's, postal, printing, passports, proofing, maybe PIV someday. <laughs> and, you know, there's, there's a post office, I can't remember the number, but it's like within 50 miles of, of every citizen or something like that. It's, it's an interesting number, but um, there's, there's post offices everywhere. 
And so when we think about how can citizens in particular get access to, say, government proofing services, the post office, is, it's just it's, it's glaring in saying there's opportunity here. And both the General Services Administration and the post office have really stepped up to say, hey, we think we can do this. And so there's, there's some, some test post offices right now that are getting spun up where we can send folks for U.S. access for PIVs to the post office and they can get proofed and they can get enrolled and they can get badges issued there. Um, but then also citizen-facing services, we're trying really, really hard to do proofing virtually wherever we can. And the technology is getting better and better where we can actually do a certain level of proofing through the camera. And, and that technology is, is getting to a point where we can't get up to the highest levels, but the intermediate levels of proofing we can do through, through a camera. And so... Goal one is to make that available is kind of the first right, because if we can keep people in the comfort of their home or wherever they, they want to be, that's what we want to do. But in the event that we're like, you know what, we're just having a hard time proofing you. There's not a lot of information about you out there. We just need to see you in person. You know, hopefully that's, you know, go down to the post office that's eight minutes away and schedule an appointment, bring a couple forms of ID and we'll, we'll get you in and out versus, you know, right now, even in the federal government, we have situations where we've got a contractor, you know, there's somewhere down in a very remote area and it's like, yeah, we're probably going to have to fly them into D.C. to get their badge and everything so they can get secure access to our systems. And so I, I just find that to be incredibly powerful. Even even Congress has taken notice of this, and there's been some proposed legislation that authorizes the post office um, under law to, to do identity proofing and, and collect funds for it and also issue authenticators, which is awesome. You know, this is exactly the direction we should be going as a modern digital society. That's amazing and very exciting. I'll have to um, touch base with you again to get an update because that would be incredible. It would save so much time and money and just be great overall. So that's awesome. And anything else? I, I think those are the big ones. I mean, I, we could talk about we could talk about zero trust that we're blue in the face. Um, the only other thing I'll note that it, it's interesting because it's not so much a technology thing, but it's a it's a it's a philosophical approach that if we don't embrace it and take the opportunity, it may not come up again. The White House has been just amazing in saying we're going to update FedRAMP guidance and we're going to post that out on the public internet for comment. And they are taking comments from anybody, anybody, about how they think, for example, the FedRAMP program should operate. They did this with the FAR rules and regulations around CUI and cybersecurity. And this is the first time ever I've seen an administration do this where they are saying, hey, we know you all have big ideas. You all have thoughts. We want to hear from you. And so um, one of the things I would say is a big takeaway right now is take advantage of that situation participate because one of the metrics that, that the White House is going to be looking at is, is this worth our time? Are folks actually participating and taking advantage of the opportunity to provide feedback directly to the White House on some major cybersecurity initiatives? So hopefully folks will, will take advantage of those opportunities as they come up. Yeah, I hope so. Well, before we conclude, do you have any final comments or remarks that you would like to leave with our listeners? 
just that, you know, the, the, the fight continues every day. And um, I'm a huge fan of, of Carol Dweck and the, the, the growth mindset. And one of, the, one of the concepts of the growth mindset is if we're, if we're willing to approach every new challenge and situation with the beginner's mindset, frankly, there's, there's nothing that we were, we're not going to be able to overcome. And I've seen that over, you know, the last six years of being the, the co-chair of the CISO Council. We've had just incredibly difficult situations, be it budget, be it attacks, be it incidents, whatever the case may be. But when when the cadre of leaders come together and they say, let's let's approach it from the very beginning and let's let's work, let's work through it, it's incredible because we always come out the other side and we always come out with a better situation than we we did it before. So I'd say word of the day or words of the day, growth mindset. Perfect. Perfect. Well, Stephen, that was wonderful. I thoroughly enjoyed our conversation and I really appreciate you sharing all the exciting details about what the Department of Education is doing on the cyber front and the progress you guys are making on your zero trust journey. It's just really awesome. So thank you so much for taking out time to speak with me and I hope that you have a great rest of your day. Yep, you as well. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Nikki. That was a great conversation with Stephen Hernandez. Before we let our listeners go, are there any last highlights or takeaways that you want to leave them with? Yes, Stephen right now said that they're just focusing on that automation piece for the second phase of their zero trust migration. They're continuing to use tools like Secure Access Service Edge to improve their user experience. That's a really, like I said, a top priority for them. And Steven says he also hopes that DOE will be able to do identity proofing virtually with its citizen-facing services. He said that would also enhance the digital experience. So Steven's just really excited right now. He's excited about the direction that they're going in and that we're all going in, which is moving towards a more modern digital society. Yeah, and we're all definitely keeping an eye on the Department of Education uh, and how this cybersecurity journey continues on into the future. Well, thank you again, Nikki. Listeners should keep an eye on the Cybercast feed for an update regarding our podcast. We're doing a little shuffling and reconsolidation of our various feeds into one. So more information will be available about that shortly. But in the meantime, if you like what you heard, make sure you leave a review and a five-star rating. And hey, tell a friend. We always appreciate growing our audience. I'm Alexander Bolova. And I'm Nikki Henderson. Thank you for listening. Cybercast, along with GovCast and HealthCast, is a production of GovCIO Media and Research. For more podcasts and to check out the other shows, head to govciomedia.com. Watch out for new episodes released every Tuesday and Wednesday across our shows. You can follow all of them on your favorite podcast platform. And if you like what you heard, make sure to let us know by leaving a review. And if you have any topics you think we should look into, contact us at newsletter at govcio.com.